It's October 27th, 1955, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. As a young man, the film director Nicholas Ray was regarded as something of a tearaway, and when he grew up he came to be investigated by the FBI, and brilliantly was given its B2 classification of tentative dangerousness. <laughs> so what better person to direct a film that follows 24 hours in the life of a troubled and socially estranged young man, Rebel Without a Cause, which was released today in history back in 1955. Yeah, and the film had been hotly anticipated, not least because it's movie megastar in the making, James Dean, had been killed in a car crash the previous month. And that meant that a lot of the initial reviews that came in after the premiere on this day did focus on Dean's performance. I mean, not everybody loved it. The New York Herald Tribune called it a turgid melodrama, which isn't exactly incorrect. You know, it's two hours long and not that much happens in it, really. Some were horrified at its depiction of the protagonists engaging in switchblade fights, drag racing, drinking. But this was exactly what the target audience loved. Yeah, absolutely. And the target audience had been identified by Warner Brothers in the pre-production process. This rising new group of teenagers, they're different from kids and they're different from adults. But that had already been done. And people forget that. They think that this film invented the teenager. But, you know, we'd had Marlon Brando as the wild one already. What Warner Brothers was saying by, by commissioning this film was, yes, but this issue affects middle class kids too. It's not just working class kids out there with switchblades and racing each other in cars. There are nice kids that are brought up in the burbs who have perfectly decent parents and nothing to worry about who are nonetheless reflecting this inner malaise. The origins of the name of the film, Rebel Without a Cause, can be traced back nearly a decade before this to a book by Dr. Robert Lindner, which came out in 1944, exploring the mind of a teenaged criminal through psychoanalysis. But the Warner Brothers then just sat on this germ of an idea until the 1950s when there was this topical appeal of depicting rebellious teenagers. It was weird because they bought it in 1946 because they were chasing one trend, which was kind of the post-war problem picture trend. Yeah. They're making lots of movies about traumatised war veterans, race issues, you know, about society kind of being an uproar. But by the time they actually got around to using it, there was this new trend, you know, the, the troubled teen specifically movie. So they wanted to sort of rework it around that. Nicholas Ray had only got a 17-page outline of a story at this point. He'd written it in one night and he had called it the blind run, and it was very different to what would eventually become Rubber Without the Cause. Yeah, because it was basically unfilmable. I mean, all of the things that he wrote down would have been too scandalous for audiences <laughs> to watch. But the trio of people involved, I think, in putting this together, Nicholas Ray, as you said, who'd been a teenage dropout at school himself, felt misunderstood. Stuart Stern, who was the scriptwriter that he then brought in, who'd seen action in the Second World War, was traumatised by his friends dying around him. And James Dean, who was this very hot property in Hollywood because they knew how good he was because they'd made East of Eden, but it hadn't come out yet. So at this mm. point that he meets Ray and Stern to discuss doing the Brando role, if you like, in this new project, he's the kind of actor that, yeah, he's going to be the next big thing, but he's still available to have lunch. And they talk him into doing this movie on the basis that he can improvise as well and bring some of his own experiences and pain. I mean, he was bisexual, for example, that's, you know, pretty clearly for 1955 signalled in this um, and there are scenes mm. where it's come out of his own brain as well as the script they went into filming this 
without a proper shooting script. I mean, you've mentioned a trio of talent behind it, but you failed to mention the early involvement of Dr. Seuss, who was one of the very early people to treat one of the pre-versions of the script oh, can before you imagine? they then handed it I over. I wonder why we're in the planetarium. Is it because we're so <laughs> yeah. extraordinarium? Was it like that? Yeah. <laughs> That's quite yeah. good. Uh, would watch. Um, but, then, but then, yeah, once they kicked off, they're really was this bid to flesh out the script with the sorts of improvisation that Dean was bringing. Ray really made an effort to try to understand the whole of the cast, but particularly uh, his young lead. And he spent quite a lot of time with Dean in New York, basically getting drunk and high and (laughs) conducting these really extensive rehearsals at his own uh, chateau. Yeah, although Ray's relationship with the young cast is a little troubling. He was also shagging Natalie Wood, who mm, was a former yes. child star and was still in high school. Yeah, she was right. She was 16. A totally <laughs> yeah. bonkers article from The Hollywood Reporter in 2011 describes this whole thing as how Natalie Wood seduced her way into Rebel Without a Cause. I'm mm. like, come on, she was 16, he was 43. No. I mean, she wasn't seducing her way into the movie by any no. means. Well, she was sleeping with Dennis Hopper as well, who was more her age. Yeah, and this apparently caused some trouble between Hopper, who was playing one of the, you know, the young tearaways, and Ray, who revised his part down significantly. When East of Eden was released around the time they started shooting Rebel Without a Cause, and it became clear that James Dean was about to explode, the script was revised heavily to focus more intensely on the character of Jim. And at the same time, Nicholas Ray was ordered to refilm what he had shot so far, which was in black and white. He had to refilm it all in colour, which was more expensive and more prestigious. And the studio was now willing to spring for colour film. But also that confidence that must have given them all to let him improvise, to know that he's a huge star and to be filming with a higher budget and with the studio saying, yeah, go ahead, do whatever you want. I think that is what gave them the confidence to do some of the more outre stuff in it. Yeah, I mean, particularly the relationship between the character of Plato Crawford and Jim Stark, which, you know, at the time, I suppose you could read it several ways, but now, as you say, is really very clearly a gay infatuation on the part of uh, Sal Maneo's Plato. Yeah, and I mean, despite the fact that it has those controversial undertones, really, when you watch it, the thing that stands out the most, I think, is that it hits a lot of conventional beats and that none of the characters are really that delinquent. You know, you've got the character of Mm. Judy who says, you know, she dresses like a tramp because her father doesn't pay attention to her anymore. But she doesn't dress like a tramp at all, even by the standards of 1955. Well, I think Dean's like basically in a suit by modern standards. You look at it now, you're just like, you're still wearing a stiff shirt and tie as a rebel. Yeah, Yeah, and I think the the weird thing about it is the most controversial part to us now is the fact that Salmoneo's character is introduced as having been brought to a police station for shooting a bunch of puppies. Yeah. That isn't the part of him that's meant to be delinquent. That's just supposed to be a quirky introduction of his character. Now we watch that and we're like, he did what? Send him to jail. (laughs) The guy's a psychopath. Well, it's funny you say that they're not that delinquent, but they're all quite heavily armed. I mean, most of the (laughs) toughs in the gang carry knives and Salmoneo's character, Plato, ends up with a gun that plays a, a very crucial role in his own 
uh, spoilers, death. But I suppose the other thing being investigated is that relationship, that tense relationship between the older generation and the younger one, and particularly James Dean's character going, you know, you got to stand up for yourself more, Dad, and then going on this journey that that plays out in tragedy. But isn't that just the combination of like like tabloid marketing, which Warner Brothers had by having the title of a book, which was about the analysis and hypnosis of a criminal psychopath, right. <laughs> matched with this story, which actually isn't straightforwardly about a rebel at all. Yeah. It's about, as you say, a young man whose character is concerned with honour, with masculinity, quite old-fashioned values, really, that are about the post-war suburbs. Absolutely. And Ray, you know, he said that he was hoping to produce a classic timeless tone with the picture and he claimed Romeo and Juliet as the sort of the the inspiration. Meanwhile Stuart Stern, the writer, he was trying to do Peter Pan with, you know, uh, Jim being Peter and Judy being Wendy and Plato standing in for all of the lost boys. So they, they were they were shooting for sort of these quite high ideas. The ending's a little bit anticlimactic. Jim reconciling with his parents, introducing them to Judy, who's actually quite a nice girl, it turns out. And then, you know, the sort of moment of triumph of Jim's father putting his wife in her place, like, oh, order is restored. Finally, Jim has a role model who'll teach him how to be like a husband who checks his wife when she gets out of line. I don't know, there's something about it that's sort of just a bit underwhelming. It's like the final message seems to be if you put all of these conventional values back in place, the young people won't be lost anymore. Yeah, it does look like a film that's crying out for a director's cut where Ray goes, no, 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 that's not what I intended at all, studio boss. Well, it's not what he intended, quite clearly. That obviously was the bit that was literally tacked on by the studios because they thought that was the only way to make it palatable to mainstream American audiences. But they were wrong, but they couldn't have known they were going to be wrong. They were wrong because James Dean died just before it came out. So actually, regardless of the end, what you think when you're watching it in 1955 is... Christ, look at this amazing actor, this beautiful man who's now dead. When he filmed this, he was alive, and now he's dead. I mean, how rare is it that an actor's instant epitaph is actually their best work? Yeah, most people in the audience would be seeing him for the first time in this, knowing he was dead. Absolutely. It's like Heath Ledger in that amazing performance as the Joker. You know, mm. It's an incredible performance, but it becomes even more significant knowing that it was his last. One place that teenagers wouldn't have been enjoying James Dean's performance is the UK. The British build of film censors, as they were at the time, gave it an X rating. And that was after wow. significant cuts, including all of the knife scenes. That was all cut. But the board decided that an X rating was appropriate to mitigate, quote, the possibility of teenage rebellion. This reaction, you know, you, you may say overreaction, was partly in response to the much publicised Teddy Boy riots during cinema screenings of Blackboard Jungle, which had come out earlier this same year when the theme song of the film which was bill haley's rock around the clock would play the teenage audiences would go wild and there were shooting puppies everywhere (laughs) i mean they were ripping up the seats in the cinema and dancing in the aisles which doesn't seem as bad as shooting puppies but i'm guessing that the censors didn't want things to escalate (laughs) and so another week of retrospecting ends but next week begins a day early at club retrospectors Join us now to get an exclusive episode every Sunday. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors.